0: All right, well, let's turn in our Bible. I am going to call an audible here and want to finish from Second Kings, so I hope that is okay with you guys tonight. So if you would turn with me again back to Second Kings, and we are looking here in the 22nd and 23rd chapter. And we are looking at Josiah, the king, and you'll remember that we had three points, that Josiah wars against idolatry, Uh, Josiah loves the temple, and Josiah becomes a man of the book. And then I hope next week we're going to see how Josiah renews the covenant. So 2 Kings uh, chapter 22, look at verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found for great, Is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Amen. So we were considering here that Josiah repairs the temple, and the temple, of course, had fallen into disrepair because of the years of apostasy. Um, The temple was, of course, significant because we saw that the temple pointed us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of that temple. Then we see that Josiah discovers and hears the law of God. Now, this may seem strange because we're asking ourselves, how in the world did the Bible get lost? Um, Now, some scholars, interestingly, have an interesting suggestion, and I'm willing to run with it, and that is that um, the Bible actually was being hidden because of Manasseh. That, and the prophets of Baal were t- had taken over the temple. And so the godly people were actually trying to hide the scriptures from being destroyed. And, then, and so when they are undergoing the restoration of the temple and the reconstruction of the temple, that's when we read that the book was found. I don't know. It's a little speculative, but it is kind of interesting that it's a possibility. Some have said that uh, maybe it would be a good idea that we, as Christians today, keep hard copies. Don't get so reliant on your phone that you no longer have a hard copy of the Scriptures. You know, to paraphrase, if I can, Scripture, Google give it, Google take it away. Apple gives the app, Apple takes it away. And so you may want to, you know, make sure that you're not over reliant on technology, new technology. Uh, the Bible is technology; it's old technology. Uh, but that we you rely on, you know, having a hard copy. We don't know. Um, we know of Christians who have gone to great lengths many times to have the scriptures. Um, in they find themselves in terrible conditions, boys and girls. And some of them are in prison camps. And uh, I don't want to go into details how they found copies of pages of the Bible, but um, needless to say, it it was in horrendous situations. And yet the the little pages that they found of Scripture, uh, they kept. And they hid in the internment camp because that was was all that they, they had there. So Hilkiah the priest discovers the book of the law, and he gives it to Shaphan, and Shaphan describes it quote unquote as a book uh, rather than the the, the book of, of the law but he reads it uh, and Josiah tears his clothes now, this of course was a symbol of grief Josiah is convicted by the word of the Lord he's convicted that the people of god have been unfaithful that it's even worse than Josiah now Josiah was a godly man he was already making reformations in restoring the temple um, he had a degree of light and understanding but Apparently there was a whole lot more he realized that they weren't doing and that also that which they had been guilty of by way of commission. So he rends his garments and he immediately goes uh, to seek out a prophetess that she might speak the word of God in response to what they've heard. And so she does, of course, speak the word of God and says that God is bringing great judgment, great wrath upon the people for the sins that they've committed, but there's going to be mercy in the midst of that wrath. There will be mercy in the midst of the wrath, just like in Habakkuk. And that, uh, because he humbled himself in response to the word of God, God will delay the judgment so that so long as Josiah is king, uh, the wrath of God will not break out on, on the nation here. Now, what do we, in the 21st century, take away from this. Let me give you a few themes and ideas and applications. Number one, notice the rediscovery of the Scriptures in a place that was so near. And I think, of course, we should ask ourselves, is our copy of the Scriptures unread and yet in a place so near? Is there uh, the Scriptures in our home, which of course there are, but is it being read? Is it actually being used? And we need to realize that the Scriptures really are only good insofar as that the people of God actually are reading them, meditating upon them. There's a connection between ignorance of the Word of God and the abiding wrath of God, I would argue, in this text here. The absence of God's Word in the life of a person, of a culture, and of a nation is a sign of judgment against them. Remember, Jesus, who is the Word, did not come into the world to judge the world. He came into the world to save the world because the world is what? The world is already under judgment. The world without the Scriptures is already under the wrath and curse of God. Natural revelation that we have in creation is not sufficient to save anybody, and that's why Paul in Romans says that there's an urgency to the cause of missions and the giving of missions and the praying for missionaries because otherwise people will perish. Now, it, it, it is uh, unfortunately maybe all too common a sentiment among some to believe that God might yet save people through natural revelation. But I don't think that's justified in Scripture at all. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have that sense of urgency. Uh, in in the book of Romans, how shall they believe unless a preacher be sent? How will they hear unless somebody goes and speaks to them the word of God? And so, whenever the the Bible is absent, there there is a judgment that is falling on that place. I would argue too that places that formerly had the Scriptures but now do not have the Scriptures um, or have them very limitedly are falling under the judgment of God. We see this in the West. We're living it. Many of our colleges and universities began as Christian endeavors. Harvard be, uh, began as a Puritan endeavor. One of the first universities, not the first, but one of the first universities uh, that we have. And um, you know the story that the crest of Harvard, it used to be that you know they've got three books on their, on their shield, on their crest, and uh, two of them would be open and one would be shut and that um, it symbolized the idea that the things revealed are for us and our children, but the things that are not revealed are, are for God. And Harvard decided at some point, probably due to the influence of the Enlightenment, open that third book. So where the crest used to have two books open and one closed, now they open all the books, And meaning there's nothing that man can't know. You see the arrogance of that. Um, Jesus is called the Word himself. The reason the Scriptures also are so important is the Scriptures point us to Jesus Christ. John tells us in the prologue of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. and, And he was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh, if you jump down to verse 14. So Jesus even takes the terminology of the Word, the logos, to himself. So... Highly valued uh, are the scriptures in the sight of God, that the second person of the Trinity is willing to be called the word himself. Because why? Well, he is the revelation of God in himself. When he came into this world, he was God in the flesh. We see that with Josiah, the word of God brings a conviction of sin. Now, this, of course, is uh, not always a pleasant thing to be brought under the conviction, but like a doctor trying to treat a patient. You know, boys and girls, you know you go to the doctor, something's wrong, and you really don't want the doctor to touch this and twist that and, you know, poke you and stick you with a needle, right? But those things are ultimately we trust uh, for good, that it's not without purpose that the physician is, is... putting you through this, and uh, that you will be better for it on the other side. When the Scriptures speak to us and we come under a conviction of sin, um, that's a good thing. Um, One of the things you don't want to be is somebody who is never moved by the Scriptures, who can sit under the Scriptures and never be moved. I think we should ask ourselves, um, are you listening... Well, to the Word of God? Have you ever responded to the Word like Josiah and actually changed something in your life because of what you heard in the preaching? Are you listening with a sensitivity that God might be trying to tell you something through the Scriptures in the Providence of God? How well do you listen? If you have your hymnal, turn with me to the back of the hymnal to Larger Catechism 157. Larger Catechism, question 157. And I i mean, you know, if you want to memorize the Larger Catechism, man, more power to you. But you should, um, it is really a valuable tool, at least to study and to meditate on. It's on page 961. Thank you. Page 961 in the back of the hymnal, Larger Catechism, Question 157. Listen to um, this question. How is the word of God to be read? The holy scriptures are to be read with an high and reverent esteem of them. With a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God. That is, you need to recognize the scriptures by faith. You sit under the Bible. The Bible does not sit under you. You are not the judge of the Bible. The Bible is the judge of you. That's what they're saying here. So that you must come with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God and that he only can enable us to understand them. That is, the things in the Bible are spiritually appraised and we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to give us that sense of appraisement. With desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them with diligence and attention to the matter and the scope of them, with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. Um, Look at question 160. Question 160. What is required of those that hear the word preached? It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the Scriptures. That's very important. Listen, don't take it just because Boyd Miller says it, but you look at the Bible and see if that's what the Bible actually says. If if the, if the Apostle Paul is being checked by the Bereans and the Bereans are commended by the Holy Spirit for checking the Apostle Paul, how much more do you need to check me? So we we examine what we hear from the pulpit By the Bible, the Bible is the standard. We believe in what is called sola script authority for the Christian. The scriptures, the Bible is the word of God, and that's the final authority. Synods and councils may err. Pastors do err. But the Bible is inerrant and infallible. So examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. And there's a lot there. I think you could probably spend a few minutes just reflecting on those two answers and get a lot of profit from it. So are you listening well to the Scriptures? Uh, Are you responding to the Scriptures? Now, I'm not saying you got to rend your garments at the next family devotion, boys and girls. I'm not saying, you know, fall on the floor and rend your garments. But I, I am saying that we do need to res- be responsive to the Scriptures, even if it's an internal explosion. There was a, an African-American Presbyterian minister that I sat under when I was a college student, and uh, he used to say that the white folk have inner explosions. <laughs> and uh, he, he's right about that. We're, we're not always the most demonstrative people on the earth if you're, you know, you've got that Anglo-Saxon or Celtic aspect to you. But nevertheless, that means we're not impassive to what God is doing. We don't have to say amen, and we don't have to you know, make it known when the Scriptures are speaking to us. But even if it's just an inner explosion, as uh, Pastor Lomax used to say, then uh, we should be responsive to that. God is at work through the reading, hearing, preaching of the Word of God. Are you listening with sensitivity? Now, I want to move on here. Um, just as part of Josiah's loving the word of God, is he then inquires. He does respond to the scriptures. And he um, does so because he's doing what the larger catechism says. He's showing sensitivity. So he goes out to seek the word of the Lord. And there is a pronouncement from Huldah, the prophetess. And she says, the Lord will bring an evil, will bring evil on Jerusalem, Judah, and Israel, according to the curses, found in Deuteronomy. And if you turn with me, look with me at a few of these passages here uh, to see what uh, she might have been referring to. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 in the fifth book of the Bible. Do you know that Deuteronomy was the first book I ever preached through as a pastor? Uh, when I first came here, I uh, started preaching through the Ten Commandments found in Deuteronomy 5, and I said, well, you know, I used up all my sermon notes you know, that I had saved up to that point. And so I said, what are we going to do? We kept going. So we went from Deuteronomy uh, 5 on. But Deuteronomy 4, chapter 4, look at verse 27 with me. Chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve God's the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. And why? Well, because if they're unfaithful, uh, if they go and serve other gods, God was going to bring that judgment on them. If you look at Deuteronomy 27, which is where you find the blessings and the cursings, in chapter 27 and 28 of Deuteronomy, In chapter 27 of Deuteronomy, then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people saying, keep all, of, keep all the commandments which I command you today. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them with lime. You shall, uh, excuse me, and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over, so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about they're going to write the law of God on these large stones. I think it's probably in summary form, is my guess. But he says, you're going into a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set "...up on Mount Ebal these stones as I am commanding you today. You shall coat them with lime." And you build an altar there. He describes that. And he says, "...you shall therefore," verse 10, "...you shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do His commandments and His statutes which I command you today." And then he goes on. And he says, look at chapter 28. He says, "...if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I command you today." The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. So you have to realize Deuteronomy was given to the people of God just prior to their crossing the Jordan and the the beginning conquest with Joshua. So it's kind of a covenant renewal book. It's saying, let's renew the covenant here. You've been under judgment for 40 years in the wilderness. I'm bringing you now to the edge of the Jordan, and I'm giving you again my law, and I'm giving you this charge of blessings and cursings. If you will obey my commandments, and that's not a legal obedience. It's it's an obedience by faith. Remember, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we're not trying to obey God legally. That is, in the sense that we're trying to earn some kind of standing and justification with God. We already have that. That comes by faith. And and that's true of the people in the Old Testament. That they had by faith uh, the, the justification that they were in need of. Out of that justification, they were to render this evangelical obedience to the Lord in keeping His commandments. So it was never illegal obedience. Remember, Paul says this was the problem with the Jews is that they turned the law into a matter of works righteousness, and they stumbled over the law. The law was supposed to be a tutor to Christ, and instead they turned it into an attempt to uh, justify themselves by their own righteousness, and they stumbled over it, and they missed Jesus. So the point here in Deuteronomy is the same. They were to look to Jesus by faith as they cross over. Look to Joshua, the lesser Joshua, the type of Christ. He's going to lead you into the promised land. And as you go in, exercise faith in God's works, trust in the, in the Lord, and in response to the goodness of God, bring forth obedience. Obey the commands that God gives you. And all these blessings will fall upon you. He said, blessed shall, be, blessed shall you be in the city, verse 3. Blessed shall you be in the country. So those of you who live in town, you'll be blessed. Those of you who live out in the county, you'll be blessed. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body. Your children will be blessed. The produce of your ground, you gardeners out there. The offspring of your beast, you guys who are into chickens. The increase of your herd, the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket, your kneading bowl. Breadbeckers, right? (laughs) Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way, they'll flee before you seven ways. And there he goes on. Verse 11 The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and the offspring of your beasts, so forth. He'll give you rain, he'll give you sunshine, you'll be the head, you'll not be the tail. But, verse 15, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord. That is, if you do not exercise faith, if you do not trust the Lord, if you do not show evangelical faith through evangelical obedience to the Lord, then what comes on you? Verse 16, cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall you be in your basket, in your kneading bowl, the offspring of your body, your flock, your flock, 20, verse 20, the Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, rebuke in all that you undertake to do until you're destroyed, until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have what? You've forsaken me. And he goes on. There will be pestilence, consumption, fever, inflammation, fiery heat, sword, blight, mildew, um, and the rest. You're going to be defeated. Your bodies will become carcasses, and etc. And he goes on. So... That, I think, probably was maybe the very passage that was being read to Josiah when he rents his garment. And he recognizes the terrible sin of idolatry that they have been under for <clears throat> over five decades now. And he humbles himself uh, because of the blessings and the cursings. Now, here's what, uh, one of the things I want us to get out of this. Here's the good news for us who also are under uh, this covenant, though it's ad- administered differently in the New Testament than in the Old, but it's still essentially the same covenant of grace. And that is this, that as we saw at the Lord's Supper today, boys and girls, Jesus, instead of Josiah, became the mediator of the covenant. Jesus took all the obligations of this Obedience upon himself. That is, Jesus said, Look, my people are sinners and will always violate this covenant. They will never bring forth the perfection that this covenant demands. They will never have the righteousness that this covenant requires for heaven. And so, what the Son does, what Jesus does, He comes into the world. As the son of God, he becomes a man, and he puts himself, remember how Paul puts it in the New Testament, that Jesus is born, what? Born of a woman, born under the, what? The law. Put it another way, Jesus is born under the covenant. He places himself under the covenant for his people so that the life of Jesus becomes as important as the death of Jesus. I think that point is missed by many evangelicals. They, they, we all recognize the importance of the cross and the resurrection, but I think what a lot of evangelicals miss is that before you can get to the cross and the resurrection, you have to have the perfect act of obedience of Jesus. Jesus has to obey perfectly all these commandments that we find here in Deuteronomy. So Jesus willingly, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, comes into this world. He's born under the law, born under the covenant, and he never transgressed in word, thought, or deed. And he obeys perfectly all the commandments of Moses. And so that God looks at Jesus from heaven, at Jesus' baptism, and says, what? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so Jesus undergoes a baptism. And John, you'll remember, is confused. Why are you undergoing a baptism? You have nothing to repent of. You're the Messiah. You're the son of God. What's going on here? And Jesus says, permit it for the sake of righteousness. Jesus is essentially telling John, do it, baptize me, because I'm born under the law. I'm repenting for my people here. I'm undergoing, yes, I have nothing to repent of in and of myself, but I'm not repenting for myself. Jesus is repenting for you and me. And so the reason that the curses of God do not fall upon us for all eternity is because Jesus has satisfied the demands of these conditions, And having satisfied the the, the demands of the law, then Jesus goes another step and sacrifices himself on the cross as a substitute for us so that the curses that I just read to you fall on him. He lives an active life of obedience for you according to the demands of the law. The demands of the covenant require it. He's the second Adam. The first Adam has blown it. We are related to the first Adam. There's no hope for us in and of ourselves. To fulfill a second covenant. So, God, knowing that, sends the Son to fulfill the conditions of this covenant, this covenant of works, and therefore we receive all the blessings of the covenant of grace because of faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus uh, has satisfied all the demands of the law. He substitutes for us himself on the cross so that we who have violated this covenant, we who have brought all these curses upon ourselves, go and fall upon Jesus. Jesus wears those transgressions as though he himself committed them, and then he suffers the wrath and the curse of God for them. So that the law is absolutely and completely satisfied, both by the active obedience of Jesus in obeying the law and in his passive obedience by submitting to the curses of the covenant. And now... That is how a sinner is justified, in the sight of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Weak as the law was. Now, Paul's not saying that the, the law itself is wrong and weak. He's saying the law cannot save a sinner. The law demands a perfect mediator. The law demands a sinless savior. That's what the law demands. And and so Paul describes it as the law being weak. It means it's weak. With regard to you, you can't be saved. I can't be saved by doing the works of the law. But the law is still good. And the law is still necessary. And the law is the condition of the covenant. And Jesus says, I'll satisfy all the conditions of the covenant, actively and passively. I will, I will take all the demands of the law, and I will own them, and I will live out a perfect, sinless substitutionary life. And then I will live out a a death on that cross as a substitutionary um, propitiation. And I'll satisfy the curses that the law requires. Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. So Jesus puts himself on the cross and he stays on the cross, though he's tempted to come down. He does not come down off that cross, though he had the power within himself as the Son of God to come off that cross. But he would not so that he could satisfy the demands of the covenant. And so Jesus Christ became a curse so that we could therefore have all the blessings that are described in this covenant. Um, This is the beauty of covenant theology. It's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God does not make A relationship with his people and say, oh, this isn't working out, scrap it, and just throw it away and try to start de novo all over again. But rather, he um, sends his son to fulfill, even the covenant of works. God did not get rid of the covenant of of works. We're all under the covenant of works. What's the covenant of works, boys and girls? That's the covenant God made with Adam and Eve in the garden. Now that's the covenant to which we are all by nature born under. We are all children of Adam and Eve and we have all transgressed and eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even if you didn't personally eat of it yourself. You were represented there by our first parents. So it is necessary that God come in Christ and satisfy the demands of the law. So Josiah wars against idolatry He loves the temple, and he became a man of the book, a man of the covenant. Now, God willing, next week, one of the things I want to take up first is Josiah making a covenant with the Lord. That Josiah is going to gather all the elders of Jerusalem and Judah, along with the priests, the Levites, and all the people of God, And they will hear the reading of the law, the reading of the covenant, the word of the covenant. And Josiah, as the representative king of the people, will make a covenant between himself and the Lord and between himself and the people. He will pledge to be faithful to God and obedience to God's commandments. And he will be faithful to the people according to the law. He will remove idolatry and... Um, the people then will enter into the covenant as well. And I want to talk about covenant renewal and uh, what's the significance of that and how it's been used in history. But that is going to be a sermon uh, maybe unto itself. So let's stop there and pray.